Our sermon text this morning is from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, we have, uh, we have high hopes and great expectations uh, that you will bless everyone here through your word. We believe what you say, that it, your word is like the rain and the snow that come down from heaven, and they don't go back to heaven uh, without first watering the earth and making it bring forth and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Your word is like that. When it, when it comes into contact with us, it changes us. It makes us fruitful. And, and it always succeeds in your sovereign purpose. And Father, for every heart assembled here, I believe you have a sovereign purpose. You, you, you're the author of every story here. And so at this intersection in your sovereign grace, I expect you to do great things that will bring glory to you and will be for the good of everyone here. Father, now I pray that you will strengthen my brothers and sisters in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for those not yet uh, in your kingdom as adopted children that today would be the day under your grace of their salvation. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I promised you last week that last week was the last week, uh, was the last message on marriage, and it was. This morning, what I want us to consider together is our Lord's uh, teaching on singleness according to the gospel. We've been thinking about marriage according to the gospel for the last month. And now this week and next week, I want us to be thinking together about the theme that our Lord ends his exchange with his disciples on, and that is a singleness according uh, to the gospel, verses 11 
and 12. Now, one of the main refrains that has characterized uh, the last four weeks as we've been thinking about marriage has been this, that our Lord's teaching on marriage is relevant to every single one of us regardless of our marital status. You've heard me say that before, right? Well, exactly the same thing is true with absolutely no reduction whatsoever with respect to his teaching on singleness. A hundred percent of us, not just those who are single at the present moment, but a hundred percent of us need to have a gospel-shaped theology of singleness and to see singleness uh, from a God's eye view. We need a theology of singleness as Jesus gives it to us. And there are five themes I, I want to review with you. You already got nervous. Just hold on. There are five themes uh, related to singleness that I want to reflect uh, together on. Uh, you'll, you, you won't be surprised to hear me say that I initially thought we could do all five this week, but you'll be greatly relieved to hear me say that we're only going to do the first two this week. So wipe the brow to the glory of God. So the, over the next couple of weeks, these are, let me give you the five themes we're going to be thinking about. Singleness and sovereignty. Singleness and opportunity. Those are going to be our focus this morning. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll do singleness and purity, singleness and idolatry, and singleness and eternity. So this morning, I want to begin by thinking with you about the implications of our Lord's teaching in Matthew 19 on the question of the relationship between singleness and the sovereignty of God. And by singleness and sovereignty, I want you to be very clear what I mean by this. Because what Jesus is doing very plainly in this passage and very graciously in this passage is he is teaching us that no one is ever single by accident. I'm going to say that again. No one is ever single by accident. And that means that singleness is not a flaw. Singleness is not a defect. Singleness is not a deficiency. Singleness is not a mistake. It's not some kind of imperfection. Friends, I want you to hear that immediately. If God is sovereign over the boundaries and over the duration of singleness, then that means that nothing inside those boundaries can ever or should ever or must ever be regarded as a deformity, as an incompleteness, as a flaw, or as a mistake. Let the sovereignty of God lift those lies from you. Jesus leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Singleness is determined by the sovereignty of God, and therefore it is always his gift and never his punishment. Singleness is not the, the punishment of God or the neglect of God. It is the gift of God. Jesus makes this point twice in our passage. Twice. He does it implicitly and he does it explicitly. First, he does it implicitly when he's describing marriage. 
friends, because look at the vision of marriage. Verse 6, so they are no longer two but one. What therefore, and oh, this sentence is so important. You think it's only important for married people, and that's not true. It's important for 100% of people. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. In other words, the vision of marriage that Jesus is teaching is that God is sovereign over bringing together a man and a woman. And that does not mean, though your heart is often tempted to believe it, that God's sovereignty has somehow passed you over and that your singleness is somehow this hanging question in the universe about whether or not you failed or whether God has failed. No. What Jesus is teaching about marriage and the sovereignty of God in that relationship is equally true about singleness. You don't have a different God for the married and a different God for the single. Amen? So that's the implicit way in which Jesus makes that point, but he makes it very explicitly in verse 12. Because the disciples, and don't you thank God for the disciples every time they ask something stupid because it's exactly what you would ask or what I would ask. It's like, you know, I think one of the, one of the, index, one of the indices of Christian maturity is that when you read the Gospels, you, uh, when, you're, when you're a proud uh, person who has a lot of trust in his own spiritual wisdom and his own spiritual achievements, you tend to think that the disciples are idiots or cowards or thick-headed. But then, as you grow uh, and you start interacting with the disciples, and you say, well, you start seeing yourself? That's an index of spiritual maturity. And I'm, I'm only sort of joking. But look at, what, look at what the disciples do in verse 10. After they've heard Jesus uh, teach on the, the nature of the marriage covenant, then they say, whoa, that's like radioactive. So it's just better not to be married because there's no way we can live up to that. And Jesus says, no, that's not the right response. Uh, the right response is not back away from marriage altogether. The right response is to recognize the sovereignty of God over every part of it. It is a calling, a divine calling. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, referring back to what he has just been teaching about marriage. But only those to whom it is given, given by God. So marriage is a calling from God. And if God calls you into marriage, of course it's impossible for men and women. But all things are possible with God. If God gives you that calling, he will supply everything that you need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus for you to fulfill that calling. So you say, okay, well, that has to do with marriage. What about singleness? Well, notice what he does in verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth providence of God. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now he's talking about singleness. And what he's declaring is absolutely shocking. He is saying that God is equally sovereign over and involved in the call to singleness. Singleness is just as much of a call. Notice he uses the gift language here 
in verse 12, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. It's just as much the gift and call of God as marriage is. He is sovereign in and over both realms for his glory and for his people's good. Now, you, you and I uh, have, have a hard time understanding, because we live in the 21st century, sure, the eunuch language shocks us. And Jesus is using this language uh, very deliberately to assault. It's a frontal assault on cultural assumptions. Because in his day, in the first century, far more than in our day, remember who he's talking to. He's got his disciples there. So these are a bunch of Jewish males. And the assumed norm for a Jewish male in the first century would be marriage and family. The assumed norm. And what Jesus is saying here, and, oh, oh, and, a, and, a, and a eunuch would be either an object of horror or an object of pity. Somebody who's excluded from worship. And what Jesus says, he links the eunuch, which is the single person by definition, and the person who has made themselves a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven is somebody who has recognized and responded to the call of God to remain single. He's saying that that person that person brings honor to the kingdom of heaven and displays as one of, the, one of the means through which God displays the worth and the value of the kingdom of heaven. That is so radically countercultural because he's taking somebody, a category of person that every would have, everyone would have thought of as disenfranchised and as not entitled to bring glory to the kingdom of heaven. They would have been excluded from the temple. And he's saying that this kind of person brings honor to the kingdom of heaven. Now, friends, that turns the world upside down. And Jesus isn't saying that because he's anti-marriage. He just wants to make sure that the disciples understand that he and his father don't look down on singleness. Did you hear that? You might look down on your singleness. You might be a parent and look down on the singleness of your child. You might be a married person and look at a single person and look down on them because something's wrong. You need to repent. Because Jesus is, you know what Jesus is doing? He is healing you of those lies with a vision of God's sovereignty that is so big. And it's not a threat. It is the healing that you need. You know, Paul makes exactly the same point in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. You don't need to turn there now. But listen to what Paul says. He says, but each has his own gift from God. He's referring to marriage and singleness with the same language, gift from God. So if you don't think of your singleness as a gift from God, take the blinders off, my friend. Parents, if you uh, nag your kids, friends, if you nag your friends, if there's always this 
either explicit or implicit narrative in your conversations that is somehow suggesting to your single child or your single friend that they better get on with it, then you need to repent. Because the Apostle Paul is saying that singleness is a gift, just like marriage. Now, I want you to think with me about three implications of this that are very important. And the first is this. I mean, if, if you're persuaded that Jesus is teaching here that, that singleness is, is not a mistake, it's not a deformity, it's not a defect, it's not a flaw, but it's the call and gift of God, then that has three very important implications. The first is that this means that there is no guarantee for anyone that you will ever be married. No one. So if you wake up in the morning assuming that one day you're going to be married, it is not God who gave you that assumption. So stop measuring him according to a guarantee he never gave you. Stop holding disappointment that you may not even be courageous enough to use words to express that God has somehow failed you because you're single. If God is sovereign over the boundaries of both singleness and marriage and everything that's in them, then that means that no person can stand before God and say, you've broken your guarantee to me. Now, friends, what I'm saying is hard, but it's the truth. And the sooner you acknowledge that, you'll be on the path to healing. Don't measure God by a guarantee he never gave you. And, and even... Even as well, don't stop measuring yourself against a guarantee he never gave you. And repent of your own self-hatred, self-loathing, that somehow your singleness, that you become persuaded that your singleness is your failure. If what Jesus is saying is true, that singleness and the sovereignty of that, that, that singleness is determined by the sovereignty of God, then that means that your singleness is neither his failure nor it's your failure. That again, the sovereignty of God just lifts these lies from your shoulders. Secondly, singleness is not a penalty. I'm going to say it more slowly because I want you to hear this. Your singleness is not a penalty. If God is sovereign over the boundaries of your singleness and over the boundaries of marriage and everything that is within those boundaries, then that means that singleness is never to be thought of as a penalty. Being single is not a defect in you. It is not a defect in God. He is not punishing you. He is actually loving you with an intensity and a fidelity that is beyond your wildest imaginings. He made you. He loves you. He, if, you if you're in Christ, he has redeemed you. Friends, the Christian 
can never stand in a place anywhere in the Christian life and wonder with faithfulness to God's word or the gospel whether God is punishing you. Friends, if you think at any level that God is punishing you as somebody who's in Christ, you know what you've done? You have taken the cross down and you are stomping on it. This is not a little thing. Either all of God's wrath against your sin was poured out on Jesus Christ and exhausted there by God's design, by his grace, or none of it was. You see, what you're saying when you think of your singleness as a penalty is that in some way, Christ, and and a penalty for what? Your bad decisions, your mistakes, your sins. Okay, well, where has God dealt with those, my friends? I appeal to you for the glory of Jesus Christ that you repent of non-cross-centered thinking about the heart of God. So it's not a guarantee. There's no guarantee of marriage. Your singleness is not a penalty. And third, your call to singleness is a calling of great dignity. Do you see how highly Jesus speaks of singleness here? He links it in verse 12, as we've already seen, with the kingdom of heaven. I mean, what is it? Let me just ask you this, friends. What does Jesus Christ care about more than anything else? What is the highest measure of worth? What is his entire ministry about? What is the treasure that drives him from heaven to earth? That drives him into a virgin's womb? What is the treasure that drives him, not into any virgin's womb, but into a poor, obscure virgin's womb? What is the treasure that drives him and impels him to be born, not in a palace, but in a manger? And then, what is the treasure that impels him forward to live in obscurity, to grow up in a family where he is mocked by his own brothers and sisters, where even his parents don't fully understand his calling, despite the fact that both of them had angels come and spell it out for them? What is it that impels him forward in a life 30 years long before his public ministry begins, what impels him to wait? What impels him to endure mockery and to teach so patiently the same lessons over and over and over again, to be rejected every day of his life? What is it, friends? What treasure keeps him going every one of those moments? In every one of them, he is resisting temptation, although he's experiencing it. What keeps him going? What keeps him going, friends? What what impels his pursuit of holiness and faithfulness to God when no one is looking? His subduing of his thought life and his affections, only doing what is holy with his hands and his feet and his eyes and his heart. What keeps him going? And then, what keeps him going toward Calvary? And what keeps him on that cross? And what impels him into to enter the tomb and to rise again. It is the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus Christ, that one who is driven by nothing more valuable than the kingdom of heaven, my single brothers and sisters, he now says about your singleness that it is a chosen instrument of his to display that worth. 
Your call to singleness is a call of the highest dignity. Don't ever, ever think that there is some kind of caste system in the kingdom or in the church. And married folks, let us repent deeply of every negligent and intentional communication that suggests to our single brothers and sisters that there is a caste system in the church of Jesus Christ. And guess who's on top? The married people with kids who sit still in church. We do that, and we do it in America, and it is ugly. It is important. There is nothing more important than Jesus Christ, not even the nuclear family. God may choose to use the nuclear family as a great good, but it is not the ultimate good. Don't be an idolater. Your singleness, my friends, is not your singleness. It's the king's singleness. It's a treasure. It's a crown jewel that he has prepared. And what he has done, according to Jesus, is entrusted into your hands. And he's saying, take care of this for me. It is a chosen instrument of mine to make the kingdom plain in the world. Don't ever think lowly of your singleness. Your singleness is transformed by the sovereignty of God into an opportunity. It's not a liability. And that's our second point, your singleness and opportunity. Friends, I want us all to see the opportunity of singleness, but from two angles, for the single person and also for the married people. For everyone in the church, this is relevant. The calling of singleness is relevant to 100% of the people in the church. And let me show you what I mean. But first, we'll, we'll approach it first from the opportunity of singleness for the single. Did you follow that? I'm sorry, I had too many single variations in that. The opportunity of singleness for the single. And my, my, my single brothers and sisters, you know, what, you know what singleness according to gospel means? It means that you stop defining yourself according to what you aren't. Did you hear me? Singleness according to the gospel means you stop defining yourself according to what you aren't. And you define yourself according to what you are. That you don't think of yourself or uh, that you don't think of your singleness as God's denial of opportunities, denial to you of opportunities he gives to others, but instead you are to think of it as his gift of opportunities to you that he withholds from others. If all you see in your singleness is closed doors, you are not looking hard enough. That's how Paul understood his own gift of singleness. It was the key that open. You see, so many people think of singleness as a lock. But in the Bible, singleness is a key that opens a lock. Look at what the Apostle Paul says. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7, and this is on page 956 in your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 through 35. 
I want you to be free from anxieties. The un now pay attention to how Paul unpacks the pastoral implications of being married and unmarried here. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. He's got responsibilities to his wife that the unmarried man doesn't have. And that imposes a, a, a responsibility, a burden, a stewardship. He has to think about things that, this, that the single man doesn't have to think about. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. Now, my single sisters, does that characterize what dominates your thought life? When you think about your singleness, do you say, there's a lock, there's a lock, there's a lock? Or do you see your singleness that God has given you as the key that opens a lock so that you are freed up to consider, to pour your passion into thinking about how to be holy in body and spirit. And my unmarried brothers, do you think of your singleness as a lock, a latch that is keeping you from valuable things? Or do you think of it as a key that opens a door to look at verse 32, how you might live as a man to please the Lord. The married, but the married woman, verse 34, is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. He's not taking sides in the single married thing. He's just trying to open up for the single person in particular, the opportunities of singleness that are not available to the married person. And the goal of it all, look at verse 35, is to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now that's absolutely stunning. Paul's looking at a singleness not as a, a, a liability, but as an opportunity it's not a limp. And, and this idea of, of having God in his sovereign grace open a door of opportunity to you is utterly essential. If you are going to live as a Christian single, you have to learn to interpret your singleness the way God interprets it. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, I said, a theology of singleness is going to mean, a theology of, of, of singleness according to the gospel is going to mean that we have a God's eye view of singleness. And according to Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, right, the God's eye view of singleness is that it is not a liability, it is an opportunity. So there, there are, are, if God has called you to singleness, he has closed the door of marriage, but this door, this beautiful door, of undivided to devotion to the Lord. That door is wide open for you because of your singleness. So the question, uh, of course, must be pressed. Is that actually, in your eyes, a beautiful door? What if your story... What if your story as a single person, the one that God is actually writing for you, is far bigger than you ever dreamed? 
You are tempted. I understand. I was single once. I, I, know, I know how I thought. And I tended to think that my life was small because I was single. And you're tempted to think that as well. You're tempted to believe it's smaller because of your singleness. But have you ever considered the possibility that your singleness may in fact be the very means, the choice instrument in the hands of the God and Savior who loved you and gave himself up for you, his choice instrument, not to make your life small, but to enlarge your life? Have you ever considered that possibility? That what he is entrusting to you in your singleness is the most important work of all in the universe, more important than being a wife, than being a husband, than being a father, than being a mother, more important than all of that? What is that most important work? To display the ultimate worth of Jesus Christ. That is the most important work in the universe. You know, it struck me when I was preparing for this sermon. That's interesting. God takes you down a path. You don't necessarily know what's going to happen on the path. Or you, you th- Well, when you're as proud as I am, I'm sure I know what's going to happen when I get to the end of the path. And this one caught me off guard. I realized, I remembered that the first person who ever shared the gospel with me was a single woman named Dorothy Peters. She is also the, the person who gave me my first Bible in 1979. She had grown up on a farm in Saskatchewan. And as a young girl, and it would have been very normal for her, and a strong Christian family, it would have been very ordinary for her to think of uh, just staying in in that community forever, being one of the wives of one of the other sons of the farmer families in that area. But at a young age, she sensed God's call to missionary service in East Asia. And so in the early 50s, she... I went to Japan. And that's where I met her. Well, actually, that's where she met me. Uh, I, um, in God's providence, I was a non-Christian. I was 17 years old, and I was in Japan that summer as an exchange student. And I was living in this uh, boondocks Japanese uh, city named Fujinomiya, about 120 miles uh, from Mount Fuji. And it so happened that she and I were, I think, the only Caucasians in that community. And it so happened, and there are scare quotes around that, it so happened that she had been ministering to my host family and found them very stony ground for many years. She had been living in this town for about 20 years when I got there in 1979. And she found out that this family she'd been ministering to had an American uh, exchange student. And so she was a heat-seeking missile. And I, I thought she was weird. I mean, I was a very cocky, angry, non-Christian who thought that Christians were idiots. And I'm not exaggerating. 
And she invited me over for dinner. And she did that several times during the two months I was there. And I would always say yes, because she was my only chance of getting any food that wasn't raw fish. <laughs> and she shared the gospel with me very faithfully. And then the last night that I was there, she came over and she gave me a Bible. And um, after she had left, in the presence of my host family, I ripped it up. Oh, the irony. Oh, the mercy of God. Right? I mean, when I read 1 Timothy 1.16 and I hear what Paul says, yet for this reason I receive mercy, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to all who would believe in him for eternal life. I always think of that. And then two years later, when I was converted, she was the first person I wrote. And she wrote me back. And she said that when she'd got my letter describing my conversion, that she had felt uh, greatly rebuked by the Lord because she had been tempted to stop praying for me because I was such a hard case. Now, I want you to think about that. I hadn't seen her for two and a half years, and I had not been a pleasant encounter for her. And yet what that letter revealed is that in the two and a half years, she never knew whether I was going to see her again. But in the two and a half years between when I last saw her and then when uh, I, I wrote my letter to her, she had been praying for me. Now, why in the world did she have space in her life to pray for me? She didn't have a husband. She didn't have kids. Her devotion to the Lord was undivided. That was God's call in her life. When she left Saskatchewan and went to Japan, she had never heard of Deland, Florida. You see, Jesus Christ called her in her singleness to an arena of service that enlarged her life and did not shrink it precisely because she was single. So friends, I urge you not to think in small terms about your life. Don't ever think or feel that your life is small because you're single. Remember, friends, the largest life ever lived was the life of a single man. Ever lived. And so when he speaks highly and approvingly of singleness as he does in this chapter and as he does through his apostles in 1 Corinthians 7 and elsewhere. Friends, I want you to never forget that he is also speaking autobiographically. Our hope, our place in the kingdom is secured for us by one who is called to be single. And in my own case, I am living proof of the fruitfulness of the ministry of somebody who was called the singleness. So please don't think poorly of your life as a single person. Now, what about the opportunities for the people who aren't single? And this, I think, is a, 
is an important area for us to think about if we're going to think about the, the church, the way we're supposed to think about the church. And let me begin by saying to our single brothers and sisters, please forgive us. I know that others join me when I say, please forgive us for our single blindness, for all the ways in which we remind you of your singleness. Some of it clumsily and intentionally, and some of it clumsily and negligently. Forgive us for all the ways that we hold out before you marriage as the ideal of completeness when it is not God's ideal of completeness. Forgive us for that. We need the gospel, and we need you. We cannot be ourselves apart from you. You are not extra baggage. You are an integral uh, member of this body. You are an equally important member of this body. So what, as I speak to my, my married brothers and sisters, what is the opportunity that the singleness of our brothers and sisters give us? Well, well, here are some ideas. How about moving to move toward them? How about to know them? How about to take a genuine interest in them? How about to serve them? How about to bear their burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ? What I'm articulating here is the, this spinal cord of love that is supposed to bind us all together. There are 10,000 things that we could talk about here that would be relevant for ways that we could minister to single people. But the, but the banner over it all is love. So I want you to think concretely with me. I mean, you, you have a family or you have a marriage. Friends, are you opening the door to your household, to your life, to the single people, your brothers and sisters in this congregation? When you, when you have a Friday night, movie night as a family, why, why don't you invite some of our single brothers and sisters? Why don't you weave them into your life? When you think about going out to lunch after the service, grab, well, ask them if they would come with you. But you see what I'm saying? Love means taking your center of gravity off of yourself. And it's all these things that if, if single people and their needs are invisible to you, let the gospel make them visible to you. Because you were not invisible to the living God. And he extended you a welcome. You have to steward that for the sake of others. You need to include our single brothers and sisters. You need to remember, we all do, we need to remember their birthdays. We need to accord them full status in relationships. We need to pray for them. Uh, on the holidays, we need to invite them into our home and make sure they have a place to go. How about when we go on vacation? Why can't we invite members of our church who are single to join us. Speak with them about things besides being single. Help them through deep friendships that provide for them intimacy. Because you know the deepest intimacy is not sexual intimacy. Sexual intimacy is a picture. It's an illustration of the deepest intimacy. And so deep friendships with single people. Now, I'm going to encourage you that that needs to be members of the same sex as yours, okay? 
But I want you to think about that. How you can give a gift. I'm speaking now to my married brothers and sisters. How you can give a gift and have a vital gospel ministry in the lives of our single brothers and sisters because they need our help. I want you to think about what an important ministry God has entrusted to the married members of the church, a ministry to the single members of the church. Our single brothers and sisters are tempted and often do. They're tempted to grieve because they don't hear anyone saying to them, yes, and I do. But friends, Jesus Christ, like the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, is always yes. Always yes and amen. Is always toward his people, yes and I do. And we have been given this ministry to our single brothers and sisters to help them hear the voice of Jesus Christ saying over their lives, saying over them specifically and concretely, yes, I do. Now that's a rare privilege. Because you remember what John the Baptist said, how was his joy full? His joy was made full when he heard the voice of the bridegroom addressing his bride. So can we strive as married people to be like John the Baptist, who bring that Jesus, who is always saying, yes, and I do, to our single brothers and sisters? What a privilege that is, that dignifies not only our single brothers and sisters, but also our relationship with them. And remember what John Owen says. We all need to hear this, particularly today as we go to the table, right? About Jesus. His heart is glad in us without sorrow. And every single day while we live is his wedding day. We can remind our single brothers and sisters about that. There is no better news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the vision of your church that emerges out of this passage. It is so lovely. And we rejoice in your great goodness to us. And now as we get ready to celebrate at your table, will you grant that through this table we would together, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and heart to heart, look to that great marriage supper of the Lamb as being prepared for us to sit down with you in the new heavens and the new earth. And we pray in your name. Amen.